Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Bonjour, we are back in Paris, Dominic, for Bonjour, the mesdames. second Bonjour, part of our um, episode on the events of 1968, um, and we are literally in Paris. We're in the, the heart of uh, the Latin Quarter, the Latin Quarter, where the students all kicked off. Today, we're going to be um, we're going to be continue sitting in the cafe. We are continue our chat. Uh, we're going to be heading off to the Champs Elysees. And it is all thanks to WISE, the international account that is built to save you money around the world. Whether it's with a card or your phone, you can spend like a local Dominic. Have I ever said that before? Never. I think I might have done. In 150 countries. Have I mentioned that as well? Always. 150 countries. Brilliant, Tom. So you may remember, dear listeners, that last time we were talking about the events of May 1968, we were talking about the outbreak of the student protests uh, in Nanterre, outside Paris, about the way in which they spread to the, the heart of the left bank, to the Sorbonne, um, the overreaction of the French authorities, the violence of the police, the violence of the students in, in response, um, the sense that the government had lost control, then the wave of strikes, and we ended by saying... And, we, and two-thirds of the country is on strike. Two-thirds I mean, of the country is on strike. Figure. And this sort of sense that, um, well, revolution is in the air, Tom, I suppose you would say. And the yes. man we haven't really talked about very the, much... The general himself. Is the general himself, the president of France. He's been president... I mean, you quoted that line, didn't you, last time? Um, What's it, 10 years, that's enough. Yeah that people were chanting. So de Gaulle, he's been in power for 10 years, but of course his career is so much longer. So for those people who don't know, de Gaulle was born in the northeast of France in Lille in 1890. He served with distinction in the First World War. He was captured by the Germans at Verdun at the great kind of symbolic showdown of the, of the French and German armies. He became, in 1940, the embodiment of French resistance to the occupation. Of course, they went to England famously uh, not a great fan of England or the English, I think it's fair to say, Tom. And then he came back, famously marches down the Champs-Élysées, where we'll be later, in the liberation in 1944, and claims that France has liberated itself, doesn't want to give the British... Any credit America, to the Americans any, or British. Yeah. Any credits at all, which is all part of his belief in the glory of France. Yeah. He knows that's a bit of a fiction, but he thinks it's a, a necessary, necessary fiction, fiction for yeah. France to be itself. And then he very briefly... Um, runs France from 1944 to six, but he's impatient with parliamentary politics. He's not cut out for it. And then he disappears into retirement. But then in 1950... Les, les exactly. is his um, country exactly. hideaway, isn't it? Which is in the sort of... La France profonde. Yeah, yeah, it's in the heart of France at Colombay. This is the place that gives him his mystical connection to the soul of France, to ordinary French men and women. And it's partly because he has this supposed mystical connection that in 1958, when France has got itself into a terrible mess in Algeria, there's a coup, effectively. The Fourth Republic is replaced by the Fifth Republic, and de Gaulle comes in as a pretty autocratic president. Because the Fifth Republic enshrines the president as basically a monarch. As a monarch. He's, he's filling that king-shaped hole yeah. in the French constitution. Exactly, exactly. And de Gaulle is also, I mean, he's not just the personification of France and French patriotism. He's also the personification of what we talked about last time, which was that paternalistic, patriarchal, sort of quite authoritarian public culture 
that governs French life more generally. You know, the general. Everybody looks up to the general, the president. But he has, I mean, he famously, he has a certain sense of France. Yeah. And he means that in an almost mystical sense. The idea that um, there is a French identity that transcends the actual lived reality of people who live in France. Yes. To a degree. Yes, absolutely. And his sense of France, I think, does not include poets and mime artists long invading hair. university buildings. No, definitely doesn't involve long hair. So you may ask, well, what's he doing doing all this? So his first reaction is that this is just childishness. And he says to his ministers, uh, the 5th of May, when a child gets angry and oversteps the mark, the best way of calming him down is by giving him a smack. So excellent um, parenting advice there. Very good parenting advice. Two days later, he's been sent a petition by French Nobel Prize winners telling him to go easy on the students and to give the students what they want. And he is enraged by this. And he says to his ministers, you seem terrorized in front of these children. Do not forget that a minister of the interior must know how, if necessary, to give the order to fire. So he's, he's coming out with this very sort of ferocious stuff. But actually, of course, he, he knows that this will never, you know, no one's going to act on this. And in some ways, I think Gagor is actually paralyzed. He doesn't know what to do. He's really out of touch. I mean, he's actually a very literate and very cultivated man who goes out, who's always gone out of his way to read the latest fiction, to be up with, you know, the latest cultural developments. But he's in his mid-70s. Yeah. And by the late 1960s, com for completely understandable reasons, he is out of touch with the mood in the in French universities. But also, the, the, the Soissons-Huitards are defining themselves against the kind of ideals of, of patriotism that de Gaulle embodies. Yeah. And that must be bewildering to him. Absolutely it is. Absolutely. So as you said, he's been off to Romania on a state visit. He insists on going ahead with this visit to Romania. Well, because he's very keen, isn't he, on situating France between yes, the, the NATO and the Warsaw Pact. Yes. And Ceausescu in Romania is a kind of slightly loose cannon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, to a degree. Yeah. And so he's kind of hoping to convert Ceausescu to Exactly. A goalist understanding. I think it's fair to say Nikolai Ceausescu, not a friend of the rest of history. No, not at all. So, yeah, right, exactly. De Gaulle has been to Romania. He returns to France on the 18th of May. And he says, you know, he's been, when in Romania, by the way, he hasn't been sleeping. He's been lying awake at night, sort of Worrying. full of anxiety about what's going, what on earth is going on in Paris. He returns and he says, this anarchy is absolutely nonsense and it must end. And he calls it famously Chionli. Which is a, a dog has shat in the bed. Basically, basically. Yeah. so it's soiling the bed. Yeah. Which is obviously not, I mean, it's a very famous remark, but it's not best calculated to endear him to the yeah. student protesters. Because yeah. basically, I, I mean, the way of translating, I suppose, would be to say they're bedwetters. They're, they're, they're yeah. wetting the bed. Yeah. On the 24th of May, he gives a very, he decides he's going to break the logjam. He gives this very, very rambling speech wittering about everybody wants more participation in life, we'll set up councils, all this stuff. This is no good at all. More protests, people shouting adieu de Gaulle in the streets. Um, now, actually, at this point, he's also got into difficulties because Daniel Kuhn-Bendy, Danny the Red, the student radical who's become the face of the sort of the left wing of the student protests, he has been on a speaking tour. You know, there's that one of those very late 60s speaking tours where he's probably pitching up on... Pa panel shows with Mick Jagger and Mary Whitehouse yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Editor of the Times. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and the French, now you, we, you were saying last time, he's actually technically a German citizen. Yeah. And he's Jewish. Right. So the spectacle of Jews being deported from France 
by right. the French police yeah. is an incredible, in, you know, incendiary. That is a very raw wound. Raw isn't wound, it? exactly. So the government bans him from returning to France. This inflames yeah. the students. So you have yet more violence. The violence is now spreading to the right bank of the River Seine, by the Has way. Has anyone not just died? Yes. So two people die in total, I think it's fair to say. One guy is killed by a fragment of a grenade. And the other person, I can't actually remember how he died. I think he's run over by a van or something. Okay. But actually, you know what, Tom? It's not my, I mean, compared to the, the commune, Paris commune. That's... Compared with the Paris commune. Compared with the repression of the Prague Spring yep. um, later in the year. Compared with the riots in the US. So the riots that summer that greets the news of the assassination of Martin Luther yeah. King, where scores of people die. I mean, the death toll, the, the, the CRS are cracking people's heads, but actually they don't really... I mean, so to that degree, they're not behaving like the SS. No, they're not like the SS. I mean, there's an irony here, isn't there? We talked in the last episode about the memory of the um, Parisian police killing Algerian demonstrators in 1961. You know, that's barely remembered. It's mentioned in that film, Caché, that we were talking about. But... The, the events of May 1968 in which effectively... Well, Caché is made by an Austrian director, right? Hanneke. But it's May 1968. It's the theatre. It's the spectacle of the student occupations that lingers in the memory. But, of course, at this point, if you're a French politician or a police chief, you don't know that this is going to... That, that, it's, that it's pure spectacle. And you think, given France's history, this is really running out of control. I mean, this is going to be the Paris Commune. So it's at this point that the army are making contingency plans to reoccupy the, to reoccupy the capital. They have Which 20, is what happened with the commune. With the commune. Yeah. The, the bloody, I mean, if that had happened, of course, you can only imagine what the death toll would be. They are planning, they're readying troops outside the city to retake the capital. Now, at the same time, they're pursuing different tracks. So at the same time, the government said, okay, let's talk to the unions. Let's get the workers back to work. Now, we mentioned this last time. They have what's called the Grenelle Accords, which is in the 25th and 26th of May. One of the negotiators, actually, is a friend of the rest of his history, Louche Lounge Lizard, <laughs> Jacques Chirac. Yes. Was he? <laughs> Monsieur Six Minutes? Uh, well, there's different claims, right? Or so is he, the, is he the Mr. Three, Four, Five, or Six Minutes? Yeah. Shower included, <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is a reference to his uh, interactions with his, uh, lady friends. with his lady friends. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That's a complete tangent. Chirac and co, they negotiate a deal with the unions. We mentioned this last time. They'll get an increase in the minimum wage. They'll get all these sort of goodies. The head of the CGT, the big communist union, Georges Segui, he goes to Bilancourt, to the Renault plant, and says, brilliant news. I've negotiated this fantastic deal. And people say, no, not good enough. You know, at that point, the mood has become... It, it's this... The intoxication of protest. Drunk with the sense of its own possibility. I think that's a very good way of putting it, actually. I mean, the references to intoxication may sound that we're being, you know, unfair, too critical. But I think there is always a sense with any protest, with any revolution, that these things acquire a momentum that nobody can quite explain. Nobody knows what's going yeah. on. And great fun. And great fun, exactly so. So, th I mean, that is a key part of it. Well, we're here in May, right? I mean, it's a beautiful day. It's a lovely place. You can That'd absolutely a see for a riot. that people are having... A tremendous time. Yeah. They're occupying buildings. They're wearing polo necks. They're talking about obscure philosophers. Uh, what, what could be more fun? They are demanding the impossible. Yeah. Now, the government faced with this and the rejection of its offer to the unions has basically run out of options. There is a sort of sense at this point, at the end of May, that 
you know, nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows how it'll be resolved. And that de Gaulle has shot his bolt. That he is an old man. He is completely irrelevant. François Mitterrand, who had lost the last presidential election to de Gaulle in 1965, he says, there is no more state. You know, the state has failed. I am ready to assume power. His rival on the left, a guy called Pierre Mendes France, he says, I'm also ready to assume power and I'll work with the communists. And the communists at this point, having previously stayed out of it, they now say, right, let's organize a massive demonstration. So they're jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah. I mean, I know you were surprised when I said this. The communists had never been a fan of all this business. They had always thought, this is bourgeois nonsense. But right now they think the government has collapsed, the government has failed, the Fifth Republic is dead. We need to put ourselves in pole position for what comes next. So they plan this big demonstration for the 29th of May. Now, on the night of the 28th of May, de Gaulle is at the Elysee Palace. He has completely lost control of events. He is in what his biographer And the Elysee Julian, Palace is not far from where we're sitting now. No, we could, well, we'll, we'll, we'll so, get a taxi to it later, yeah. but we could walk. I mean, the violence has already spread onto the right bank of the river. So it is coming closer and closer to the Elysee. The, the prospect of people storming the Elysee seems very real. I mean, it's happened before in French history. Well, so the shadow of, the, of, of Versailles, exactly of the so. storming of the Bastille. Exactly. I mean, these are the canonical events in French and, history. And de Gaulle has a profound sense of French history, as we've mentioned. So that night, his biographer, Julian Jackson, says he spends the night in a state of, and I quote, apocalyptic despair. He makes three, well, well several interesting historical comparisons. First of all, his, his wife is, by the way, Yvonne, is in floods of tears. She thinks they're going to be lynched, they're going to be guillotined. Who knows what's going to happen? He says to his aides, this is like 1940. I remember 1940. This is a moment of decision. But he then says to his aides, I don't have the energy anymore to deal with this. I'm, a, I'm an old man. I'm not a young man anymore. The second thing he says to his aides, he says, the roots of this are deep in France. So we as a nation have never recovered from being beaten at Waterloo by the English and at Sedan by the Prussians. You know, this is deep, this is deep stuff, Tom. And then his aides say to him, you, we should flee to Versailles. You know, go to Versailles, get out of the city. And he says, I am not Louis-Philippe, who we talked about. The pair. In, uh, looked like a pair. The, the pear-shaped <laughs> last king of France. We talked about him in our 1848 yes. episode with Chris yep. Clark. He ran away. De Gaulle says, I'm not going to run away. So he lies awake all night, 29th of May, this is the day that the communists and the big communist union, the CGT, are prepared for a big march. Um, the police are expecting 50,000. The communists claim there are about 400,000 people there marching through Paris, chanting, Adieu de Gaulle, goodbye de Gaulle, farewell de Gaulle. It's interesting. This is a real turning point in history. Had they tried to occupy key buildings? The communists. The communists. Yeah. The police are prepared for that. There probably would have been shooting. There probably would have been massive street violence. At that point, there would have been a lot of bloodshed and possibly the whole thing could have spiraled massively out of control. Okay, they so don't that's do a, that, a huge what if. It's a huge what if. Meanwhile, de Gaulle, he um, was meant to be meeting his ministers on the morning of the 29th. Um, he postpones the meeting. He says, no meeting. He starts to take all his personal papers, get them all ready to remove them from the Elysee Palace. He says to his son-in-law, who is a man called Alain de Boissieu, he says, I don't want to give the protesters a chance to attack the Elysee. It would be regrettable if blood was shed in my personal defense. I've decided to leave because nobody attacks an empty palace. And he says to his aides, I'm shattered. I'm leaving the capital. I'm going to Colombay les deux Anglises, which you yeah, talked about. Yeah, his country hideaway. Yeah. 
his the soul of France. Yeah. I'm going to commune with the soul of France at my country house. Meanwhile, he's he's actually got something up uh, up his sleeve. He gets a general to come to him and he says, "Go to Baden-Baden to the French forces in Baden-Baden." over the border in West Germany. Right, so this is like the British Army on the Rhine, the yeah. US forces in Germany. France also has been given a portion of West Germany to yeah. administer in the, I mean, Germany as it was in 1945. Exactly, And exactly. French troops are still in situ there. So there are French troops over the border in West Germany. And he says, I want you to talk to the guy who's in command of the French troops, who's a man called General Massu. Now, General Massu had been part of the Free French in the Second World War. He'd served in Indochina. He'd served at Suez in 1956. He was a paratrooper commander. Most famously, I mean, people who went to our show, Tom, at the um, in Leicester Square when we talked about our favorite historical films, those people who were inspired by that to watch the Battle of Algiers will remember Colonel Mathieu, I think he's called, yeah, the paratrooper very commander. Very charismatic. In the Battle yeah. of Algiers. Well, he is inspired by uh, Jacques Massu. Massu had a breach with de Gaulle over Algeria. He said that de Gaulle had sold out Algeria. But on a personal level, he remains loyal He's very to, loyal. To they have a shared experience of the liberation. Because of 1940. Out of 1940. And basically, de Gaulle now has sent this guy, General Lalonde, to say to Massu, can we rely on you? We need you. We need the troops in Germany. You're going to have to basically march on the capital. Everything's gone out of control. Meanwhile, de Gaulle is in, um, still at the Elysee. He has a meeting with Georges Pompidou, his prime minister. There's actually loads of tension between de Gaulle and Pompidou. Pompidou, it's a bit like the tension between Anthony Eden and Winston Churchill or something. Yeah, or between the king and the dauphin. The king and the dauphin. Pompidou basically thinks de Gaulle is a, is a busted flush, wants him to, to leave. Yeah. Uh, de Gaulle is very cross with Pompidou and thinks he's always sort of undermining him and stuff. De Gaulle calls in Pompidou, his prime minister, and he says to him, I am old, you are young. You are the future. Au revoir, je vous embrasse. Very strange, you know. Pompidou thinks, what's going on here? Then de Gaulle takes off by helicopter with his wife. They're going to Colombe, to his country house, but as soon as they've taken off, he tells the pilot something he hasn't told Pompidou or anybody else. Okay, we're not going to Colombe. We're actually going to Baden-Baden. We're going to Germany. Back in Paris, Pompidou and co. discover that de Gaulle is not going to his country house after all, that he's not going to Colombe. And they're like, what? What's going on? Pompidou is in a complete, everybody's in a complete funk. Well, you would be, wouldn't you? The general has fled. The general has vanished. Yeah. You know, we can't find where he is. People are running around shouting, he's fled the country, it's all over. Uh, one of Pompidou's friends comes in with a gun for Pompidou and says, you know, you're going to need this. <laughs> yeah. uh, there are people God. burning documents. Yeah. There are people planning their journey out of the city saying, how do we get out? The petrol stations are closed because of the strikes. You know, we're going to have to take petrol. What happens when the revolutionaries storm the palace? You know, all this sort of stuff. People are trying to get fake ID cards. So it's like um, uh, the episode we did on um, Fall, of Saigon. Fall, Fall of Saigon. It's absolutely. Like the American embassy. It's very American embassy. Eventually, word comes to Pompidou. We know where de Gaulle has gone. He has gone to, to Germany. He's gone to Baden-Baden. De Gaulle's helicopter lands at Baden-Baden at the military airport at 2.40 p.m. Meanwhile, of course, the communists are marching through the city. At three o'clock, Massu, who's not been forewarned about this at all, really, he gets to you know, see de Gaulle. And de Gaulle starts the conversation by saying, it's finished, it's done. Il est futu, tout est futu. Everything is screwed. And he just goes on this massive rant. And he says to Massu, it's finished. I've lost control. I don't know what's going on. And I think at most, you know, certainly Julian Jackson, de Gaulle's biographer, says, you know, it's Massu 
who says to him, who stiffens him. It'll be all right. It's going to be fine. I promise you the troops will be loyal. Because that's why de Gaulle is gone. Yeah. If the army turns against him, it's lost. To test the loyalty of the army, go back to Paris. We are with you. You can rely on us if, if the shooting starts. So de Gaulle's still dithering a bit. He thinks, well, will I address the nation from Germany? Will I address the nation from Strasbourg? Eventually decides, no, I will go back to Colombie. He flies back to Colombie. Now, interestingly, part of de Gaulle still fears the worst because his wife, Yvonne, has given the family jewels, the de Gaulle family jewels, to his son and his daughter-in-law, and they stay in Baden-Baden at the military base. Right, so, so with the aim of keeping it as a, a bolt hole, a should, bolt hole. should the worst come to the worst? Should the worst come to the worst, they're going to leave Paris, flee to Germany, and then who knows? Anyway, in the meantime, de Gaulle has come back to Colombie. He is then going to go back to Paris, and the next day, he is going to make his decisive intervention. And Tom, I think, not least because a huge mob of tourists have assembled surrounding the cafe. They've obviously heard yeah. that uh, Hollywood's Tom Holland is here. Or maybe they're about to, to engage in some situationist maybe. street theatre. So I think um, we should go and see the general, because there's a statue of de Gaulle okay, just well, by the Elysee Palace okay. on the other side of the river. And I think we should uh, take a camp to get there, because I know you're, you're not Brilliant. a great one for Let's walking. And uh, what absolutely decides me that that's what we should do is the ease of use of WISE, because um, we are now paying with our digital cards and uh, if you want to order a physical card, you can get that in just five minutes. Oh, I've, I've done that. I've tried. Have I've got you? one. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, so either way, whether you are in a shop, whether you're in a cafe as we are now, uh, whether you're online, uh, you always have the right kind of money for the right price. So let's go and get the cab. And when we come back, we will be on the Champs-Élysées. Allons-y. All right, Tom, we've just jumped into the cab. We were on the left bank, not far from the Sorbonne. We're now on our way across the river, across the River Seine, onto the right bank, and we're going up to the uh, near the Elysee Palace and the statue of General de Gaulle. And I'm going to pay for the cab journey. And of course, that's made much easier for us, Tom, with WISE. Now, we're paying with our digital cards, but you can order a physical card in just five minutes. Now, either way, whether you're in store or online, you've always got the right kind of money for the right price. Right, here we go. Let's uh, use the app. Voilà, monsieur. So easy. Merci. Merci, monsieur. So, Dominic, we have crossed the Seine. We've left the Rive Gauche behind us. Um, and we've arrived really in the, the great centre of Paris. The, yep. the Champs-Élysées in the distance. Yes, so we've got a nice quiet spot here, but we can just see the Statue de Gaulle we were looking at earlier, Tom. Uh, so he's this sort of lanky, striding figure. Not unlike yourself, I have to say. Man Very of destiny. Nice. Yeah. So there's the statue. Um, now over there, obviously, I don't know why I'm pointing out because the viewers can't, or the listeners can't see it. But anyway, for the sake of completeness, the Elysee Palace is just a minute or so up there. And there's the Champs-Elysees stretching into the distance. And that's where the great drama is about to unfold, Tom. So, so we left it on the evening of the 29th of May, didn't we? De Gaulle, back at Colombie. And the morning of the 30th finds him at the Elysee Palace. And his aides come in and they find him a man transformed. He's lost all the sort of ditheriness and the, the anxiety and the uncertainty. And he seems, you know, basically that visit to Jacques Massu and the army. Once he knows he's got the army, he knows he's not going to suffer the fate of Louis Philippe or, yeah. Yeah. you know, Louis XVI or whatever. And they say, well, we've got this big Gaullist demonstration planned, a counter-demonstration in answer to the communist demonstration yesterday. Great. And he says, 
well, I'm going to give a speech in the evening. I've decided I'm going to speak to the French people. And then this guy called Focard has a very good suggestion. He says, don't do the speech in the evening. Do the speech before the demonstration to kind of fire up your mm. people, your France. The other person he meets is Georges Pompidou, friend of the show, who um, he's prime minister. He says, I want to, you to dissolve the National Assembly and let's have elections. And de Gaulle is like, great, let's do it. So finally, they have some clarity. So the first thing is the speech. And de Gaulle gives the speech at 4.30 in the afternoon. And crucially, he doesn't speak on TV. So he's speaking on radio as he had done in 1940 from, exactly. from London. So what people don't, they don't see a tired old man on television. They hear the voice that they associate with broadcasts from with London. With resistance and with liberation. resistance, with liberation. And it's a very short speech. It's only four minutes. The brevity is important because it's at this time of vacuous slogans, demander l'impossible and stuff. De Gaulle is really clipped and precise. He says, you know, go back to work, go back to the universities. I'm going to settle this now. I'm dissolving parliament. Um, we will have elections. The choice is very clear. It is between the intimidation, intoxication, and tyranny of a party that is a totalitarian enterprise, meaning the communists, or it is me. That is the choice. It's a bit kind of, it's a stupid comparison, but it's a bit Britain in 2019. You know, yeah. there's a sort of a clarity. You're with me or you're with them. Decide. You know, it's the sort of get Brexit done, which, of course, we know didn't turn out to be a recipe for And certainty. requires comparing General Gold to, to Boris, Boris Johnson, Johnson, which is, which is <laughs> so it was a ridiculous. It was a ridiculous <laughs> comparison, but that's what we're for on the rest of this history. Anyway, he says the choice is very clear. It's me or them. He also says, if there's any more protests that disrupt the elections, I will not hesitate to use my emergency powers in the Constitution under Article 16 to declare, basically declare a state of emergency and rule, as it were, by decree. So there's a real sense of like, this is the moment of decisiveness. The general has kind of, you know, stepped up to, to fulfill his part in the drama as he did in 1940. And for his supporters, this is absolutely the goal they've been itching to see for weeks, I would say. I mean, Julian Jackson in his biography says, it's not just about de Gaulle turning the tide single-handedly. The tide was already beginning to turn because... The protests were great fun, mm -hmm. but there are people who actually do want petrol. And they, you know, the shopkeepers in Paris who are sick of having their windows smashed in and actually would just like to get back to business as usual and all of this stuff. But de Gaulle's speech has an incredible, it's, it's one of those instances in history of a, of a speech having a genuine galvanizing effect because they're expecting, you know, 300,000 people on the streets, on the Champs Elysees. Historians disagree about how many there were. But I think many would agree this is probably the single biggest demonstration in, at, the, at that point in Parisian history. Maybe 800,000 people, maybe half a million people. It's hard to know. But they're a huge crowd. They're Nixon's silent majority, Tom. And are they generally older? They're not all older. There are young people there. Because don't forget, there are a lot of... I mean, do you know what? My French teacher at school, René Filo, he was a pied noir. His family were pianos who'd come from Algeria. Yeah. He was very cool. He wore a polo neck. Okay. He chain so, smoked. Uh, but, so why is he not on the side of the enragé? I think because he, he, he loved, I'll tell you who he loved. He used to say, Chirac, c'est mon homme. Oh, okay. You know, Chirac is my man, kind of. He loved Chirac. He despised the, uh, the radicals of 68. And I think there were an awful lot of people like that. There are a lot of yeah. conservative okay. students. So people are listening on their little radios as de Gaulle is speaking. They're, they've gathered in the Place de la Concorde and they are, Absolutely. I mean, people describe it as electrifying. 
you know, they are... Cross of Lorraine, the, yeah, all that kind of the thing. The hero of France's past has re-emerged. And of course, the other thing, they march down the Champs-Élysées, they fill the Champs-Élysées, just a few steps from where we are now. And the point about that is, again, it's the liberation. That's the street down yes, which course. de Gaulle marched in yeah. 1940 with, and the crowds. And so, so actually, I mean, the weird thing is you, you accused, uh, well, accused, I mean, you <laughs> set, described um, the, the students as in a way playing a, a part, from, a part yeah. in a drama. Yeah. And in a sense, de Gaulle is reprising a drama in which he was the star. Yeah. Kind of retracing his steps. Isn't that what politicians do there, Tom? You know yourself from your books on Rome. Of course. That's what. Augustus, or but he's, but he's he's using the set of Triumph's Past, of, of yeah. Triumph's Past, yeah. But it is literal street theatre. It is, it, it is exactly, it is, it's genius. And actually, it's it's so often the way with these sort of these growing bubbles of kind of revolutionary enthusiasm. It just takes one prick, <laughs> and suddenly, <laughs> and which prick is it? Yeah, it's like, I, I was regretting that metaphor <laughs> as soon as I embarked upon it. I knew you'd yeah. enjoy that. The whole mood changes. I think. Basically, it's a shock for a lot of the students and for the radicals when all, as, as is so often the way, when all these other people pitch up waving French flags and saying, hurrah for the president, hurrah for the general. They're like, what, where did all these people come from? Yeah. You know, they've crawled out from under their rocks. And the other key thing, actually, which is always, so always underestimated in all accounts of revolutions, riots and such, it's a holiday. A holiday is coming. It's going to be the Whitson holiday weekend. And lots of people are going to go to the beach or to their country houses because it's the beginning of June. And actually what happens, I, I, my, my extremely mean-spirited thought is that a lot of people <laughs> hear from their parents that they're going to the, going to the holiday they're home. Going to the holiday home and they're like, oh, right, well, in that case. You know, we'll put the revolution on hold. Oh, well, the revolution, exactly. And then when they come back, so there's one more night of the barricades in the 10th and 11th of June, but that's really a bit of a, a last spasm, I would say. The Sorbonne is cleared by the 13th of June. The next day, a lot of students had occupied the Odeon Theatre and they had said, this is going to be a kind of National Assembly type thing. The police clear that as well. And so what happens in the election? When is that? Well, held? so the election, de Gaulle frames it brilliantly. He says, it's me or the communists. And the communists, ironically, who had not been keen on the whole thing. Yeah. He says, that is the choice. You're, you're on the forces of order against communism. And what about Mitterrand and Mendes France, who had both kind of tried to put themselves at the head. They both lose their seats, ironically. So it's the biggest, at that point, the biggest legislative landslide in French history. So in the first round, 486 seats. Um, de Gaulle's party win 353. The communists win 34. And the socialists win 57. So for the left, it is an absolute disaster. And actually anticipates what's going to happen in America, where Nixon wins the presidential election. So um, 1968 is the year the Beatles release Revolution. And yeah. famously, they record two versions of it. Yeah. The first of which, you know, count me in for revolution. Yeah. And then they do one, count me out. Right. Uh, and in a sense, they are speaking for France. So first of all, count me in. Yeah. And then suddenly they change their mind and think, count me out. Well, the funny thing is people did opinion polls and they found that 20% of the French public said they'd like a revolution. I think that's true of all moments in French history. Mm -hmm. That the fifth of the French public would like a revolution. Yeah. About the same proportion would, would have said, you know, I'd, I'd take to the streets to oppose it. And the rest, like, you know, don't care, would stay out. And these are the Sandbrook masses. The Sandbrook the masses. The subjects of your books. Yeah. They're thinking about the sound of music. Yeah. Uh, the, whatever opposed. the French equivalent of Bernie-ins are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So from a purely political perspective, I would say, and it won't surprise you or anybody else to hear me say this, that to my mind, the event of May 1968 
are a, are a cul-de-sac. They're a failure. The result is, I mean, De Gaulle does step down a year later, but he's tired. He was probably going to do that anyway. I don't think and that's... a friend of the show, Georges George Pompidou, who takes over. Yeah. But I mean, after that, what happens? It's not like the, the left are kind of, you know, waiting in the wings. So Mitterrand does become president in the 1980s, but even Mitterrand, I would argue, ultimately turns out to be a much more conservative figure than many people anticipated. By and large, I would say politically, what happens with France is that sort of English or rather British left of centre people tend to idealise France and to imagine that it's this kind of social democratic paradise. But actually, I would say France is in many ways a remarkably conservative country. I mean, just to give the example of the CRS. The CRS is still out there bashing people over the head at the slightest sign of protest. Yes, but you, you could advance an argument that the impact of May 68 is actually, I mean, it may sound a bizarre argument to make, but most radically felt in the English-speaking world. Yeah. So I thought I knew you'd make this argument, which is why I went hard on the okay. uh, on the alternative. So we talked about Foucault in the first part. He's he's been away, but he does come back. So I think you, I think you do have a sense in the wake of '68 that a lot of the kind of the celebrated French philosophers, yeah, Derrida and Lacan and yeah, Julia Kristeva, and but most famously Foucault. Yeah, I kind of trying to wonder well, why did it go wrong? Why did nothing happen? And Foucault gets very interested in kind of prisons, the state apparatus for, for repression. Yeah, surveillance. Surveillance. And, yeah. So the famous image that he comes up with in his, his book, Discipline and Punish, as it's translated into English, it comes out in 1975, is this idea, it's actually English, so Jeremy Bentham. Yeah, the, the panopticon. panopticon. The idea that the state is always watching you. So a yeah. prison where, where you are always being surveyed. And he advances the theory that the state constructs these apparatuses to generate what he calls docile bodies. Yeah. So in other words, everything that within a state is structured to geld and pacify the revolutionary spirit. Yes. And you you might think that this is exactly the kind of thing the French would go for. But I think you're right that by and large, Foucault is regarded as a bit of a charlatan in France. That actually it's in British university. No, it's in America, really. Oh, yeah, in America. It's in America. Because in America, in the, as I don't need to tell you, in the 70s, intellectuals likewise, particularly on the left, are wondering, well, what the hell happened? How have yeah. we ended up with Nixon? How have we ended up with Ford? That's very cruel to Gerald Ford. And so they, they apply this kind of insight to what they see as the apparatus of repression. And I mean, America is jailing a lot of people and they're, they're often black. Yeah. And so that then feeds into theories about intersectionality and so on that then... The obsessions with power and oppression power which and oppression, we see all the time. Which, yeah. which then had a kind of huge impact in 2020 with, yeah. with, um, with the Black Lives Matter protests, which in a way has a kind of 68 feel, I think. Well, there's an argument, isn't there, that the spirit of 68 became institutionalized because basically the mime artists and polo necks ended up running cultural institutions. But they're all bourgeois. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Of course they are. I mean, that's the sort of the standard story is of the 68er who just ends up selling out and becoming, you know, a university bureaucrat or something. And I think all of those people, I mean, effectively, they did end up with the levers of cultural power in, from the 1980s. But I think in, 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 say, in, a, in the United States or in Britain, the idea of things like institutional racism, the idea that there are structures that are inherently repressive. Yeah. I think you could trace the origins of that philosophy back to Foucault and Back to the way that Foucault is trying to make sense of 68. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm over-egging it. So I think the claims that are made for the influence in 1968 are, well, you know, they lost on the streets, as it were. They lost in the legislative elections. But 
They won in the long run. They won the battle for culture. That are our but are we talking about France here or, or France or, or, and in the Western and the West, the West generally, generally? I would say. But I think all of those changes, and in fact, even those arguments about power and oppression and so on, I think they would have happened even if the students at Nanterre had been able to visit the other people's halls of residence. I don't think it took the street protests and then the moment of excitement to, I think it's slightly false self-congratulation. Well, I, I, I know you love to dis, dis philosophy. <laughs> I think there is, I think you can see that there is a kind of intellectual influence there. And I think also what's interesting is that it does also influence conservatism because famously a British student in May 1968, who looks out of the window at yeah. the students ripping up the cobblestones is Roger Scruton. Yes. Who yes. becomes, I mean, he's not, he's probably not a, an influential figure in Britain, but he's a massively influential figure for conservatives in Europe. I mean, he's a huge influence on Victor Orban, yeah. on George particularly, Maloney. Particularly in, in Eastern Europe, isn't yeah. he? I mean, and yeah, because what did he say? Middle class hooligans. Yeah. What I saw was an unruly mob of middle class hooligans. And when I asked my friends what they wanted, all I got back was ludicrous Marxist gobbledygook. So that's from his essay, Why I Became a Conservative. And what Roger Scruton does in that essay is he contrasts it with Prague about going the experience of going to the Czech, to Czechoslovakia. Because that's going on at the same time, isn't it? So to, to my mind, actually, it, for people in Britain in particular, where there is no real 1968, the events of May 1968 in Paris seem so exciting, intoxicating, you know, indelibly French a sign of all the things that are, f are fun and romantic and glamorous about France, whereas we in Britain are, you know, driving to and from Milton Keynes or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But actually, in the grand scheme of things, they are eclipsed massively by what happened in Prague. Which is very, very devastating for the moral claims of the Soviet Union right. and the Warsaw Pact and, and probably communism generally. Yeah. So the, the Mexico Olympics, there is a terrible massacre in Mexico City, which is you know, kind of eclipsed in the popular imagination. Um, dozens, I think maybe even hundreds of people are massacred. And again, one of these events of this extraordinary year, or indeed in America, Tom. So when Martin Luther King is assassinated, I think we talked about this already. I think something like 43 people die in the riots that follow in the, the, the police versus rioters in, in American cities. Again, by those standards, do the events of May 1968 in Paris, exciting and dramatic and spectacular as they are, do but, they really? As we discussed in our episode with Christopher Clark on the revolutions of 1848, it's because it's Paris. It's because Paris is the home of revolution. It, it is. The French Revolution is the primal example of this. And so whatever happens in Paris reverberates yeah. across the world. But is this not the last time that ever happened? Don't you think? It seems so. I mean, France has really swung to the right. I agree. Because don't you think that I, I said in the first episode, I think that this was the. Yeah, the most exciting moment in kind of post-war French history. But actually, it's the only moment in French history that most people outside France in modern French history have ever heard of. Because mm -hmm. what's happened since then? The Mitterrand presidency, the Chirac presidency, Sarkozy, Hollande, Macron. I don't think anybody outside France could name a single event that happened in any of those presidencies. Because actually, I mean, obviously, there have been riots um, since... 1968. So there was some very, very serious urban writing in 2005. That's right. I remember. Then I think that, yeah. 2012 again. But they were largely children of immigrants out on the 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 banlieue, yeah. the, the peripherique. Yeah. And there were kind of soixante-huitards who were trying to speak the, the you know the language of 68 when they analysed this. But actually, it meant nothing to the people who were rioting yeah. in 2005. I mean, the language of the revolution and of, of soixante-huit meant nothing to them. And actually, maybe Tom, you could say. 
here we are in 2023. You know, we're probably the last generation that could make this podcast on this subject and think it's a really big, interesting subject. Because don't you think in generations to come, these events will dwindle compared with 1848 with the Paris yeah, Commune? I think so. with, you know, I think, I mean, 1968 as a year still has a kind of glamour. Oh, it I definitely think does. it's Che Guevara, Martin Luther King. Yeah, Robert Kennedy, exactly. Exactly. And, and the music as well. So the music of 1968, yeah. I think, provides a soundtrack to it. And Richard Nixon, Tom. Let's not forget. <laughs> yeah, I always Richard like to remind people that the big winner Richard of 1968 Nixon. is yeah. Richard Nixon. That's how and I George like Pompidou. That's what makes me so popular at dinner parties. Yes. Right. So we will return to 1968, I think, next year, because we're going to, for the American presidential election, I have all kinds of great notions at my sleeve about American presidential elections. And 1968 is the canonical one. But also, I think we will return to France, the subject of France in due course. Because we yes. have to finish the French off in the Hundred Years' War. We do. And <laughs> yeah. um, we've talked a lot about the French Revolution. Yeah. And uh, we're aware that we've only we've done two episodes on <laughs> the events of May 1968. And we've done one episode on the whole of the French yeah. Revolution. So we must maybe come back to Paris. And we have loads back. of French history to And come. if we do come back to Paris, then um, we will know uh, what card and what app to bring. Remind Dominic. me, Tom, I've, I've forgotten. So uh, we've been using Wise um, and uh, Wise brilliantly have created a travel guide to Paris that includes lots of the locations that we've talked about in today's episode. I mean, oh, it certainly great. talks about the Champs-Élysées where we're not far from that now where we're sitting. Um, and so to learn more about how you can travel like Dominic Sandbrook, a great historian, um, and yet spend like a Parisian, you can visit wise.com slash restishistory or click the link in today's episode right. and on that note tom i'm going to go off down the champs Elysees right now to buy a souvenir Do you know what i'm going to buy i'm going to buy a little eiffel tower are you yeah you're not going to buy a chunk of uh, cobblestones no chuck it at a no right policeman okay i might actually buy a little see if they've got a general de gaulle effigy or something like <laughs> of course that. you are on that bombshell we say merci et au revoir au revoir <laughs>